Welcome to another episode of Watch If You Dare, everybody. This week we've got a uh, pretty heavy movie. Not like the most scary intense movie, but a pretty heavy movie for you. It was it was pretty scary. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we'll talk about it in a little bit. First of all, we are Watch If You Dare, a horror movie podcast where we discuss movies every week and discuss their themes and relations to real life horrors and just how effective they are as a cinema. So we are me, Aaron, Monster Boy, and the cowardly, cowardly, not lion, I guess, but yeah, cowardly lion, I guess, still works for you. I, I haven't found what is it, my courage or my brain? or my heart <laughs> yeah it's all of them it's whatever that like bottle of booze was that the wizard gave the lion yeah there you go that's all it was it was courage elixir but it was just booze how many podcasts have talked about wizard of oz actually being a horror movie um i'm sure some have we definitely have returned to oz on our list because that fucked up tons of kids growing up yes isn't that a kinder trauma movie absolutely yeah which who swaps out her heads and fucking people getting turned to stone and shit yeah it's uh pretty good yeah shockingly i haven't seen it before well 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 one of these days i know right cool well, uh, before we get started talking about our movie for this week, like always, we've got some recommendations. So, Derek, we'll go ahead and start with you, sir. Wow, I feel like it's been a minute since we've done recommendations with no guest. So, I have a chunk of them. First one I want to start off with, and this is kind of a shared recommendation for both you and I, Aaron, as you were the one who told me to check this out. I wanted to recommend a psychedelic desert rock band out of San Diego, California, called, and I dig the shit out of their name, Aunt Cynthia's Cabin, to give you an idea, is sort of along the lines of that heavy, psychedelic, kind of witchy vibe that Uncle Acid and the Deadbeats give off. Even the imagery of their LP, Misty Woman, has that woman's face against a candle, and it looks just really fucking occult and awesome. And then you listen to it, and it is fucking groovy, it is psychedelic, it is hard, it does have a lot of elements to, like, witches and occultism and all that good shit misty woman the title track of the album is sex that song is so good it grooves so well i thought this was the band that you were gonna mention just the way you described them misty And the thing I do like about it is, and granted, don't get me wrong, I absolutely adore Uncle Ass and the Deadbeats. I think we both do. And I know between the both of us, they've been brought up as a recommendation. Well, if this is your first time listening, please go check out Uncle Acid and the Deadbeats as well. But the thing I do like about Aunt Cynthia's Cabin that kind of sets them a little bit apart because, you know, they, they do have that kind of classic, traditional, heavy psych, even kind of borderline doom sound to them that like Black Sabbath started and so many bands 
Anne's copy. And the thing I think that I like about Aunt Cynthia's Cabin that sets them apart is they have a little bit of jam band mixed in there yeah. through the LP. I apologize because I don't have individual tracks besides Misty Woman off the top of my head, but just listening through that whole album start to finish, it flows really well, but there's also a lot of moments of just them jamming and it's groovy, it's dark, it's sexy, it's awesome. You're the one who recommended this to me. What are your thoughts on this album? Yeah, I mean, all that basically. I enjoy them. They've got like a good kind of California culty feel to it, but it's very psychedelic, garagey, got some good atmosphere going. You know, nothing like groundbreaking, insanely like, oh my god, my eyes have been opened, kind of fresh and new, but it's a good combination of all the things that you know and you enjoy it's that comfort food gumbo but really good gumbo so yeah i would definitely recommend them like you said they're not introducing anything we haven't heard before but they're doing everything so well that it's like one of the better album debuts because i think this is the only album they put out i really hope they're still together because i was checking on their socials and i really haven't seen much activity since july august of 2020 so like it's been a good chunk of months since there was any activity from what I can tell on a lot of their socials. So maybe they're just like kind of waiting for COVID to blow over. I do hope they're still together and making music because like Misty Woman is a hell of an LP. So please go check them out. Give at least that album some more love. It's on Apple Music. That's how I found it. I think they're also on Spotify last I checked. Yeah, I just got the album right off Bandcamp too. Yeah, again, their Aunt Cynthia's Cabin and their first LP is called Misty Woman. Highly, highly recommended. And thank you, Aaron, for recommending that to me yeah on to video games i'm not introducing anything i haven't already talked about in recommendations i'm going back to demon souls because i beat it and i can finally kind of give my final thoughts on it in the terms of horror i would say out of all the souls bloodborne games with the exception of like sekiro this is probably the most horror adjacent of the series it's a lot more dark fantasy than i thought it would be but that's not to say that there isn't any like sense of horror and dread in it some of the bosses that are straight up out of a horror video game are like the adjudicator was a pretty horrifying looking boss uh the fool's idol was another good spooky boss the leech monger was literally just this giant demon made of leeches. All so right. like, yeah, there's a lot of fucking horror going on in uh, Demon Souls, but it is more of a dark fantasy. If I would to say out of like all of the Souls games, Demon Souls, the three Dark Souls, Bloodborne, I'd say the most straight up horror game is probably Bloodborne. And Bloodborne's actually probably my favorite of the bunch. But Demon Souls was a damn good game. It's the first game I played that truly felt like the gen we're in now with PS5. They did such a good job remaking it. I do think it's a game that horror fans who also liked a game should check out. Maybe not so much for the scares, but more of the dread and more of just like the get good grind until you beat a boss and the sense of accomplishment of beating bosses. I would say Demon's Souls is actually one of the easier Souls games, which is funny because one of the mechanics in this game is when you die um, until you find an item that can resurrect your body, you operate with half a health bar of your max health. So it's I'd say that the actual going through the levels is much harder than the actual boss fights in this game so it's still a challenge but for someone who has played through all the souls games now with the exception of dark souls one which i've only played a part of i'd say the other souls games are probably harder than this one but that's just me so two thumbs up again on demon souls aaron 
Did we bring up Class Action Park on a recent <laughs> episode? Mm, I don't believe so. We talked a lot about it offline, but uh, I don't believe we've mentioned it on the show. Yes, listeners, Aaron and I have talked a lot about this outside of recording, and that's why I can't remember if we actually already recommended this. So I will actually recommend this. Not a horror movie or documentary, mind you, but it's a documentary that has a lot of real-life horrific shit in it. Class Action Park was one of the better movies, I think, from last year, possibly one of the best movies from last year. It is a documentary film about an amusement water park called Action Park that was located in New Jersey, the Vernon Township of New Jersey, to be specific. To give you an idea of some of the real-life horrors that this documentary goes into is the lack of regulation from (laughs) both the government as well as the actual staff at the park. For example, there is a part, and Aaron, you were the one who warned me about this, where they made a water slide that's literally just a loop it does like a whole loop but they didn't have any real engineers come in and design this thing nope. so every time people like went through the loop they were bashing their heads and shit against the top of the the thing because it was a contained tube otherwise they'd fly out well not just that but because of like the length and the angle and how fast the water goes and all these other like science bullshit and physics the quote that stuck with me the most was the guy who was like there's only two places in the entire world that you're going to be able to catch nine G's. One is in like a fucking F-98 Raptor fighter jet, whatever. And the other one is going down this fucking slide at Action Park. (laughs) Well, and so they went into it in the documentary a little bit more. You know, this is kind of spoilers for Class Action Park, but it is a documentary. But if you want to skip ahead, go ahead. But at one point, they had to open up the top of the loop of it. I forget what they're doing. I think they were making some changes because of just so many people. Well, they had to figure out where people were getting injured because people were just shooting out the bottom of this fucking thing covered in blood. And they were trying to figure out what was going on. And they kind of figured out they're literally shooting up the front side of this loop so fast that they are just smacking against the very top of the loop. And then they are falling and impacting the like bottom part of the top of the loop and then hitting the bottom of the loop and going back out. But what they discovered when they fucking opened it up to try to figure out where people were hitting, I'll let you. Yeah, this is where the horror really kicks in. When they open it up, they're finding like fucking people's teeth lodged into the side of the thing and they were saying that at the angle that the teeth were lodged into the side of it people who slid down and were having coming out with like scratches on their backs and arms were getting their skin ripped by the teeth that were lodged in the fucking fucking slide so that's the kind of shit that's the kind of horror like that this documentary really digs into but on top of that that goes into so many examples of other injuries tons of body injuries and, and then like they actually go into deaths that occurred there and the fucking deaths are crazy because yeah they had like what three different people drown in a the wave fucking pool? wave pool was the most horrifying yeah. to me because so much of that documentary is just the most looney tunes fucking wily e. coyote physics and bullshit like oh yeah we made this track that goes down a hill and we're gonna put this giant ball on the track
track full of people and then it you know like goes off the track immediately and bounces down the fucking side of this mountain and then across a fucking highway right dude how that guy did not die is beyond me yeah really but the wave pool to me was by far the most intense awful just dark moment of that because they're talking about how a it's full of piss and shit and blood people are just swimming in this and it's all fresh water so you're not as buoyant as you are in salt water right people aren't like just naturally floating like you do in the ocean when you're jumping waves so people think oh yeah i can handle this no problem and they get out there and they're just barely over their heads but they're not buoyant so they're not floating and bouncing and they just get pulled under and the undercurrent beats the shit out of them and people are smacking into each other and then they're having to pull out three people every hour just to keep them from drowning just so awful yeah and they talked about how like as punishment or if you were like a new person as part of like the hazing yeah they throw you out there yeah they assigned you as lifeguard at the wave pool and they said that they actually would pause so many times i think like it was a once an hour or something and they literally said that they were told by management at one point just to check for bodies because like <laughs> yeah. that's how like murky the water would get especially when the waves were going and then just the other thing was like the fucking guy who or kid even i, I forget how old they were getting electrocuted in that like basically what was rent a jet ski and just race your friends and yep. run into each other river but they have electric shit in the bottom of this like river or lake to like get artificial currents going yeah and of course someone got electrocuted because it short-circuited and like electrified that small area of the park that place has got to be fucking haunted man <laughs> how many bodies the other part of it too that's kind of wild and like again this is not a horror documentary but like this is the kind of stuff that is wild about it just the general atmosphere of being at this water park in the 80s surrounded by a bunch of fucking latchkey kids from jersey who are just yelling and screaming constantly berating you like oh yeah go down the slide you pussy come on all right hurry up get the fuck out of here you piece of shit imagine getting heckled by like 40 fucking jersey little motherfuckers that lord of the flies atmosphere constantly were just like there are no rules nobody is fucking paying attention well and the kids ran the place too exactly like, yeah the whole place was just run by fucking 14 year olds yeah who were doing it as a summer job just nobody is in charge you know like that entire atmosphere is terrifying it was like a reaganomics nightmare too yeah because there was no government oversight the question's constantly like what's gonna happen if something happens like how are these kids gonna deal with it but that's the problem that they ran into constantly was they are fucking kids and they don't know how to handle this shit and when somebody dies guess what ah you know like how are they supposed to fucking handle this shit and spoiler alert there's a lot of deaths that happened over its period like yeah i, I remember we were <laughs> talking about it and you said you'd think after one drowning the wave pool is shut down and then they had three drownings like within years oh shit like that now yeah like one person dies done that park is fucking shut down at least yeah. for like a while so yeah that shit was bananas but yeah that's on hbo max if anybody wants to watch it and to kind of go into my like last recommendation something i just kind of want to talk about going off a class action park because it ends really in a really amazing way because it like gives a voiceover of one of the people they had interviewed throughout which i love the people they had interviewed because it was people who used to work at action park and also a lot of like 
comedians from Jersey and even New York who went to Action Park during the summers all the time. And they had a uh, one comedian who was kind of featured throughout it. It ends with him talking as the parents visit the gravesite of their child who they lost from a fatal accident at Action Park. And like as he gives his kind of final speech about like Action Park being this weird gonzo thing that really only existed in that time. It was never before done and it will never happen ever again. It was crazy and it was a part of his childhood and you know for better or for worse you can't take that away from him. And it's zooming out from the graveyard almost like I guess on a drone shot or something and All the Mad Men by David Bowie starts playing and I got (laughs) fucking goosebumps when that happened. So kind of going into my last recommendation and this is definitely one I know I probably brought up more than once David Bowie. After watching Action Park I went on a little bit of a kick listening to Bowie albums but also just kind of looking into his history with occultism and what albums kind of reflect that the most. Last podcast on the left did a a series on David Bowie and the occultism a couple years ago so it's kind of around that same line of thinking and probably my favorite album by David Bowie by far is Station to Station which is arguably also his darkest and most occult album yeah that's a weird one yeah that's that's a real weird one because that was the one he recorded in what like 15 days while he was just living off of milk and peppers and cocaine yeah he was like in a really dark place in his life yeah the title of station of stations has to do with the stations of the cross and there's all kinds of allusions to the kabbalah jewish and christian imagery there's fixation with occultism and aleister crowley specifically and i was looking through that and all the madmen actually that song is on the man who sold the world and that album is also kind of during that whole era of Bowie and all the Mad Men, that, that song in itself, it kind of explores the idea, or it doesn't even explore it, it outright depicts the idea that the world becoming a place bereft of reason so much so that all the people who would be considered sane are the ones in the asylums now. That really hit with me, especially given with what we went through here in America, at least for the last four years of like that whole idea of a war on reason and like like what is actual truth yeah and the man who sold the world kind of also deals with those themes but at the same time there's a lot of commentary about anything from vietnam to like the title track itself being about an experience with a doppelganger and then the superman is probably arguably like the most outright alistair crowley nietzsche like ubermensch superman theory that like hitler was exploring and bowie himself went through a phase like where he said some dumb shit about nazism and adolf hitler and and he even like later on went on to regret the things he was saying. Um, and he even said that that song in particular was like a period piece. And he even dubbed it later on as pre-fascist, I read, which was him just dunking on himself for going through that. But like, if you want to listen to some like darkness hidden away through some solid rock, whatever you want to call it, because David Bowie's sound is all over the place. Check out Station the Station. Check out The Man Who Sold the World. Check out the last album he released right before he died, Black. Black Star. Black Star is all about that shit too. Just more of a mature look at it at the end of his life. I don't know. Did you have any other like, am I missing anything from David Bowie? Like it, the whole Berlin trilogy has like occultism throughout. That's maybe like the darkest and most occult fixated stuff of his career. Black Star is also pretty heavy in that as well. And you definitely get the sense that he knew he was on the way out while he was recording that album. 
there is definitely just an atmosphere to it that is very interesting. And more modern-ish Bowie is kind of hit or miss for me, but I really liked Black Star a lot. So that's another one that I don't think anybody should necessarily like negate that one just because it's newer content of his. And when you, you say modern Bowie, like I do kind of count 90s through the 2000s up till Black Star as kind of that period because I'm the same way. Like as much as I love Bowie, there is a lot of the stuff from the 90s into the 2000s that I'm like, eh, on. But he still like explored darkness in different ways because I remember the track I'm Deranged, which was actually, I think, on a David Lynch. It's on uh, Lost Highway, yeah. Lost Highway, yeah, we talked about that. And I'm Deranged was like him kind of flirting with industrial rock. And that was on his album called Outside. And people have mirrored it to another track of his called Look Back an Angel from Lodger, talking about the appearance of an angel or angelic being in front of an artist and he even would play at least during that tour for out the outside album in 1995 he'd play that song and i'm deranged back to back with each other so like he still did explore darker themes throughout his career but yeah i would i would agree with you that the occultism really was there in kind of the berlin trilogy era and then again at the end of his life it's all good it's more sophisticated or i don't know mature takes on black star than when he was in his like drugged out cocaine phase it's still all great and worth listening to yeah totally and that's it for my recommendations on you aaron cool cool yeah i've got a couple of things to run through real quick three movies specifically two are currently on shutter that i would highly recommend both are indonesian horror movies that are written by joko anwar who did the remake of satan's slaves the first one is impedagore it is written and directed by joko anwar that movie is fucking bananas and i want to do it on our show because you've told me about it yeah it's pretty fucking good all i will say is it is a young woman who discovers okay like she thought she was just an orphan but she finds out okay i am from this village that is out in the middle of nowhere my family was kind of the main wealthy family at the center of this community and there is a curse on the community that my family is somehow involved with and that's all I'll really say. It kind of goes into some territory similar to The Ring and similar to The Changeling, and I'll kind of leave it there, and people who know what I'm talking about can kind of put those two and two together. Very intense, very gory, lots of jump scares, lots of dread, lots of insane, intense... Maybe we shouldn't do that one. Oh, we're going to do this one. That's the whole point of the show, boy. Yeah. But yeah, it's very, very intense. It has an amazing opening that is like one of the best short films that you'll watch if you just watch like the first 10 minutes or so of this movie. Fantastic. Very, very interesting look and feel to the movie. Culture that you probably don't have a lot of exposure to. The story elements are certainly things that you have seen before, just kind of remixed in a new, fresh way. So I would definitely recommend checking in Pedagore out. The second one, this one was written by Joko Anwar, but is directed by Kimo Stamboel. Stamboel? Sorry if I'm not pronouncing that correctly. I'm sure I'm not. This one just hit Shudder, and it is called The Queen of Black Magic. Fuck yeah. It was also pretty fucking good. This one was, again, also Indonesian. It kind of has a lot of the same look and feel of these other two. Like, you could probably 
do a good triple feature of all three of these movies, Satan's Slaves and Pettigore and The Queen of Black Magic, and that would be a pretty hella good night. That's such a metal title. Oh yeah, hell yeah. This one is three guys and their families who all go to this orphanage that's kind of out in the middle of nowhere to pay their last respects to the guy who raised them at this orphanage. He is kind of on his way out, so they're going to say goodbye, introduce their families, and, you know, pay their last respects. There's a good mixture of all the different kids of these people, like finding out information and being curious kids and looking into things and finding all these clues about what's going on. And then also the adults going through, like, horrific shit and lots of psychological fake-out stuff. Think, like, voodoo black magic stuff. Like, there's lots of people being compelled to do behaviors that, you know, they wouldn't otherwise do and people seeing things the wrong way and taking drastic actions because they are seeing something that nobody else is seeing. Lots of stuff like that. I think, you know, my only complaint is that there is definitely some slightly sketchy CGI in both movies, which, you know, these are not super high budget movies, so it's fine. Especially like Queen of Black Magic, there's lots of scenes where like, okay, yeah, this person is now covered in bugs and there's centipedes crawling into their mouth and like popping their eyeballs out and crawling under their skin where (laughs) you know it's real difficult to try to pull that shit off practically um and obviously there's only so much you want to do with real bugs because a that's expensive b there's safety involved you know it's yeah you can't train bugs for movies yeah and it's just too much of a like we're operating on a small budget it is quicker faster easier not necessarily cheaper but like it's easier to do like cgi bugs you know that's like the only complaint that i really have is some of the cgi is a little bit dodgy but what you're seeing is horrific enough that you kind of forgive it just think about that I want to meet, but at the same time, I'm hesitant to meet the bug guy that you hire for low-budget indie horror <laughs> movies. Yeah, I will always go back to Creepshow and always think of Creepshow where they got all the fucking cockroaches for that one segment. Was there a cockroach guy? Oh yeah, there was a cockroach wrangler and they had 250,000 yeah. cockroaches <laughs> and so many of them like just got out of the set and of that course, soundstage yeah. was just infested for years. They were finding that weird particular brown Yeah, Queen of Black Magic was pretty wild. And again, both movies do a lot of the same story stuff and general plot stuff that you've maybe seen before. But it's all done in a fresh way with very kind of new and untapped to at least American audiences, Indonesian culture and folklore, just shit I've never seen before. Like that's the best way I could put it is like, wow, I've never seen that before cool i'm down so both of those are on shutter i would highly suggest checking those out they were a lot of fun they were good intense roller coaster horror but with lots of good dread pretty gory pretty wild definitely some like good supernatural shit in both of them they were a pretty good mix of everything you kind of ideally want out of a modern horror movie and then the last thing i will mention this is kind of fucking buck wild and this is definitely kind of one of those weird synchronicities that comes up on our show a lot so i just found out about a fucking movie that was filmed in
in 2017 that just got dumped because it was one of the last Fox movies. And Disney just kind of had no idea, like, what the fuck to do with it, how to distribute it, how to market it, nothing. And it's been sitting on the shelf at Fox since 2017. It is an adaptation of a Boom comic series, which I didn't even know that they, like, were in this fucking game yet. It is a series that I read when it came out years ago by our boy Cullen Bunn. It is The Empty Man. Oh, they made that into a they fucking a movie made or a that series. Into a movie. Wow, I didn't know that. I oh didn't my God, either. Yeah, there it is. And again, like I think it was one of those things where it had been sitting on the shelf because this was a pretty big movie. This did not feel like an indie movie at all. It didn't have huge stars in it necessarily, but James Badge Dale is kind of a low-key leading man character actor. I mean, he was in Iron Man 3, then he was in The Grey and Hold the Dark and stuff like that. It's directed by a guy named David Pryor, and this is his feature film debut. What I'm going to say like maybe makes sense if you kind of have seen these before but he has basically spent the last decade more than that really like since 2000 he has been directing behind the scenes documentaries for lots of sony specifically david fincher blu-rays and dvds he did all the behind the scenes making of documentaries for like zodiac girl with the dragon tattoo and the social network that's such a specific job to have but that is necessary for like good special features yeah or was before studios like started skipping on that shit not doing it anymore but yeah he had been directing all of this not epk stuff but like just the bonus features for like blu-rays and stuff specifically david fincher's work and that's the closest thing that i could tell you as terms of like the look and tone and feel this movie is clearly somebody who is a student of david fincher and i wouldn't say that in a derogatory way like whenever we're talking about oh yeah this is clearly somebody trying to ape Quentin Tarantino's look and feel right this is definitely somebody who has learned a lot from looking at David Fincher's work and editing David Fincher's work into like these special features and that has clearly rubbed off in terms of the look and feel of this movie and the wild thing is this and here's where the synchronicity comes in guess what else this guy directed what he directed that fucking short film AM 1200 that Jeff has been recommending to us for like the last two years that both of us have drug our feet on watching. Did he really? So yeah, what a wild fucking thing. But this movie just got dumped to VOD in October. I have not heard of this. I have not seen a poster. I have not seen a trailer. I have seen zero advertisement for it. Yeah, there was no marketing campaign for this at all. No, not at all. Like I said, I think it just got dumped because it sat on the shelf at Fox for whatever reason. And now that Disney is running the show as of early 2019, they also were just kind of like, okay, fuck, what do we do with this? You know, so it just got dumped to VOD based on the title and based on the poster. The one thing I would say is this. You're gonna assume that this is some kind of Slender Man ripoff bullshit. It's not at all. No. I read a little bit of the comic. It's not that at all. Yeah, it has nothing to do with that. The one complaint that I have about the movie at the end of the day, like the one like legit complaint, for someone who worked as an editor for years, this movie is too long. 
That's the only thing that I would say about this movie. This is a horror movie that is two hours and 15 minutes long. Fuck. It's too long. It's maybe like a solid fucking 25 to 30 minutes too long. It needs a little bit more quickness in its pace. It needs a little bit more... I don't know, like, there's literally like two, three scenes where he wakes up from a nightmare and wanders around his house with a baseball bat. And they go on, like, way too long. Like, why do we need three moments of that, you know, and why do they go on for so long? The, like, opening exposition scene setting up the movie is... 25 minutes long the whole movie is just a little bit too long and is maybe a touch too slow but it's still pretty solid and atmospheric and interesting like it's these people who kind of sort of bring back some weird occult hoodoo voodoo bullshit from the himalayan mountains in like a weird monastery in a mountain and then it's kind of this lovecraftian thing where there's people communicating to each other through just kind of general like waves and signals and there's kind of this hypnotic quality to what's going on and it's people being driven to suicide there's like these teenagers that kill themselves and then a few of them disappear and this ex-cop is you know involved with one of these teenagers mother he starts kind of looking into the whole situation to figure out what's going on and uncovers this fucking weird illuminati cult self-help bull shit thing that's built around all of this it involves tulpas and it involves fucking bone lord demons and crazy mind control bullshit it's pretty fucking wild and you think that the entity of the empty man is going to be like some slender man bullshit because like it's even not, the, yeah even the name kind of sounds all, kind of along those lines and it's absolutely not that i mean even if it was i'm sure colin bunn would have found a way to make it an interesting <laughs> yeah well i'm um, on that colin bunn wrote it and and actually, the artist who uh, helped create it was Vanessa R. Del Rey. So yeah. I just wanted to kind of give her a credit, too. Yeah, and I definitely want to, like, pull that series back out and read it again. Because I remember enjoying it years ago. But now that I've seen this movie adaptation, I want to kind of compare the two. And I think it had a sequel. Like, it had an original limited series run. And then I think it came back for more issues as a brief ongoing. Ah, okay. I might be missing some of those then. Okay, cool. That's all I've got are those three once again that's impedagore queen of black magic that you can find on shutter and then the empty man which is currently vod at the moment so definitely check those three out Okay, cool, cool. Yeah, we have spoken way plenty long enough on this episode so far about our recommendations, so let's go ahead and jump into our movie this week. Um, We are going to be discussing 2016's Under the Shadow, an Iranian horror movie directed by Babak Anvari. This was a co-production between the UK, Qatar, and Jordan that premiered at Sundance in 2016. Great Britain actually submitted it to the 89th Oscar as their foreign language entry for that year. That's how impressive this movie kind of was as a debut. And here is kind of a taste of what's going on. Obviously, you won't quite understand what you're listening to, but this gives you an idea. You know, Baba, Mom, I'm going to bed. No, I'm not going to bed. 
Awesome. So, what are your thoughts? I really liked it. I was pretty scared by it. Uh-huh. I'll, like, yeah, all right, all right. Let, let, let's start there. Let's start there while I'm collecting my thoughts. Um, before we really dig into kind of more cultural relevancy, like right up top, we are two middle-class American white dudes from the yeah. Southeast region of America. If you're just tuning into this show for the first time, guess what? We're two white guys talking about horror, so. We are going to do our best to maybe give a little bit of background on the history shown in through this movie and all of that, but please bear with us if we get something wrong or whatever this movie's fantastic i think this might be the only persian language horror movie i've ever seen maybe like persian language movie period that i've like watched start to finish and it was amazing i thought it was great at the time of this recording it is streaming on netflix that's how i watched it so yeah i think netflix exclusively has it here in the states okay perfect yeah so it's easily obtainable to stream and watch i highly recommend watching it now all that said horror newbies and i know what Aaron's gonna say about this because Aaron he may as well be fucking Jonathan Crane the scarecrow himself he chases fear but he is immune to it I'm going to speak to you from the viewpoint of the coward, the original premise of this show. I don't know if I would start off with this one if you're, like, easily scared by shit. A lot of the more, like, on-the-surface-level horrors that this movie tackles, uh, it's supernatural, it's psychological. There is one jump scare, I mean, there's a few jump scares in this movie, but one of the jump scares almost caused me to shit my pants, because <laughs> I was not ready for it. And it happens so brief and violently and just at a moment of sheer quietness when you think everything is cool, I jumped out of my couch and like threw my headphones off for a second. And here's the thing, the imagery itself wasn't even that scary of imagery to me. It wasn't like a demonic face or anything like that, but just the zero to 60 pace of this jump scare. And it wasn't, it didn't feel like a cheap one. I'll leave it that, I will say that it was well-earned and effective, but holy shit, did it get me. Um, There's a couple jump scares scares that are intense in this there is a ton of dread and deeper sense of horror that this movie brings up historical horror something about this movie that i really appreciated because i think this might be the first war related horror movie we've ever done and i know when we had james on he was talking about how like he wanted more horror that takes place in war zones and i think he was more talking about from the perspective of a uh, soldier or something yeah while this movie doesn't necessarily deal with that it does deal in the middle of wartime with a family and it's along those lines of I think Middle Eastern conflict is ripe for horror stories supernatural stories even this is kind of that movie that this is the kind of stuff I'm looking for like when I'm talking about that because it also gives me enough of a piece of like what's going on historically at the time at the historical backdrop of this movie that it made me after I watched it go back and read up on it a little bit more and find out what was going on in 1980s Tehran during the War of the Cities 
cities. You know, again, being an American and living in the Southeast, we didn't really learn much about the Iraq-Iran conflict Not at, at all. all. Like, we kind of glossed over it when we were going through, like, the end of the Cold War. We kind of had this discussion with some friends of ours in general about what history did you actually learn in school? So, yes, horror newbies, by the way, it's scary before Aaron goes on this long, like, Dan Carlin rant. It's fucking PG-13. Watch it. I'm going to be the naysayer. <laughs> You're it's a, a PG-13 horror movie. Watch you it. You told people to watch Autopsy of Jane Doe if they're newbies, and you're a goddamn scarecrow. You're addicted to fear, and you become immune to your own drug. So this movie does have a ton of dread and anxiety and stuff that can certainly be really anxiety-inducing for people. And we'll talk a little bit more in depth why specifically. But I think that this is definitely one of those movies that despite having supernatural stuff in it, the real-life horror aspects of this movie are definitely more impactful, at least to me, than just some of the like supernatural specters that are happening in this movie. But kind of circling back around to what I was saying a second ago, we all talked about what history did we learn growing up and it seems that pretty much everybody in American schools you learn your history through World War II and if you have a good history teacher they'll go past World War II and talk about Korea, Vietnam, the general kind of slide into the industrial military complex and Reagan in the 80s and everything kind of leading up to like 9-11 let's say like if you have a good history teacher for your U.S. history like you'll at least get that far guess what you're not learning anything about anything else in the fucking world during the God rest no. of the 20th century yeah. like post World War II even with my best civics teacher who did go into like all that shit didn't hold stuff back and like talked about a lot of the stuff that America did incorrect and did wrong it was still all focused on America like yeah. our world history was more focused on Europe and America and the rest of the world was just there. And to really get the context of this movie and what's happening, it's wild because America is directly involved in what's going on and is part of the reason why things are happening in this part of the world at this point in time. Yeah, because wasn't Iran and Iraq treated as like a chessboard between Russia and the United States like during this era? To a degree, and Britain. And Britain, yeah. yeah. So I guess let's just start there real quick and I'm going to give the most basic run through of this history that I can because I think there's two key things that you need to know contextually going into this movie. One, the movie specifically is set during the Iran-Iraq War, specifically during the Battle of the Cities, but the precursor to that was specifically the Iranian Revolution in 1979, and one directly leads and causes the other, essentially. I knew dick all about the Iranian Revolution until yeah. this movie. I remember definitely getting into it in high school because the war was going full blast. You know, we had troops on the ground in 2003, all the way through like the first few years of the war when we were in high school. I have always been a politically active and aware person. I was in theater and debate growing up, so like we definitely had a lot of discussions in our debate stuff about what was going on politically. I wish I had that because I really like, I was very politically apathetic, honestly, like all the way up until adulthood, if I'm being perfectly honest. Lots of people are, yeah. A part of that 
that led to me not just not knowing world history beyond the United States. But I definitely got interested in everything that happened leading up to 9-11 and us being involved in the war and everything else. Partly from that and partly because I started getting into like movies by Kiarostami and reading like Persepolis. Things that were related to cultural events that happened in that time and I just wanted to know more about what's going on. Persepolis specifically is a graphic novel by Marjan Satrapi and it's about her family dealing with the Iranian Revolution in 79 and like all the changes and everything else. One of the best graphic novels ever written. Hands down. Period. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's one that you're always going to see on top 10 lists yeah. pretty much everywhere yeah. that you look. So I was interested in like knowing what the background was of this and it's been a while since I've really like dug into any of this so I definitely kind of had to brush up a little bit but this is going to be a pretty long-winded explanation but just stick with me I have a purpose as far as like why I'm going <laughs> to run through this so I shouldn't just go put you on mute and play with the cats until you're done <laughs> no <laughs> I'm kidding I'm going to try to like not make this a fucking Wikipedia dump but trust me the Wikipedia is way more complicated than what I'm going to run through but obviously the Middle East has always been an area of conflict we are not taking sides in anything here like I'm just here's the information that I know that I have read and that I have researched and obviously if I get names wrong or whatever like small details wrong cool I'm again doing my best this is way more complicated than even U.S. history and please if there are any listeners who like either were born around this time or their parents were around this time and younger but they know the history really well like please shoot us a message on Twitter or whatever because this is kind of something that's fascinating to me because you mentioned earlier Aaron that like a lot of the horror and anxieties isn't so much a supernatural part but it's more of what's going on in this environment and that I think is what makes this movie extra terrifying for me when I watched it because the supernatural stuff already affects me but then also a lot of the historical elements that are just dread inducing the whole idea of and we're going to repeat this but the whole idea of living under the shadow yeah it's such a fucking good title and has so many layers to it and by the way if you look up the movie poster for it the poster's awful the poster sucks just don't judge this movie on the poster it is the worst photoshop bullshit just ignore the poster but watch the movie because the movie is intense here's the thing like it's methodical but it's methodical with a purpose and it almost was broken into two halves where like shit hits the fan in the second half of the movie from like a supernatural kind of haunted house typical horror tropey standpoint but the first half setting the table of everything and giving you an idea of what life is like in this part of the world at this time period is so fucking fascinating to watch i'm sure it was historically accurate it it definitely feels like this is close to like what it would be like to be in this position but anyway i'll let you now go on your uh talk aaron so all right here's the context and this is again going to be in two halves because to explain where this movie is happening you also have to explain the revolution so the entire middle east obviously has always been an area of conflict but like the 20th century state of that region basically just has everything to do with western imperialism it's just a lot of western influence western capitalism that has permanently fucked that part of the world and caused a lot of strife the uh, area used to be ruled over by the Qatari regime in the late 1800s but the Shia clerics who are 
Islamic fundamentalist religious group. They were a major political force there as well, to the point that there was a small cultural revolution that occurred in the early 1900s where they specifically said, we don't want to be ruled by these Qataris anymore, like we're going to have our own constitutional government and parliament, and there was pushback against them in order to better handle the foreign business interests that were starting to come into the region, specifically British Tobacco and the Anglo-Iranian Oil Company. Shortly after that, a military general named Reza Khan booted out the last Qatari Shah in a coup d'etat and installed himself as a constitutional monarch. And lots of Islamic laws, such as traditional clothing, especially for women, and separation of the sexes and stuff like that, were all just thrown out in favor of Western cultural norms. And this led directly to the Shia clerics rising in power and popularity as a result. So the more push to westernize, there's just that immediate reaction with more of an Islamic presence. So Reza Shah's dynasty, the Pahlavi dynasty, they grew insanely rich from oil money and their partnership with the Anglo-Iranian oil company. Obviously, none of this wealth trickled down, right? He was pushed aside and his even more pro-Western son was installed as the new Shah in 41. Fast forward 10 years, the new prime minister that comes in, Mohammad Mossadegh, he vowed to basically cut ties with the British oil company and boot them out of the country and instead nationalize the oil. Well, British didn't fucking like this, right? <laughs> and Churchill specifically wanted to overthrow the prime minister and the government. But they didn't have the U.S. support at the time because Truman was pretty okay with what was going on. But as soon as Eisenhower got in office, his secretary of state, John Foster Dulles, fucking airport named after this asshole, right? And his brother, Alan <laughs> Dulles, who was the acting head of the CIA. Oh, boy. These two fucking brothers, these two, like, paranoid assholes, right? Yeah, these two must have been some fucking fucking government spooks man basically so they both decided that it would be in the u.s interest to also back this coup iran at the time had wealth anti-western sentiment was brewing there plus they shared a really long border with russia and they had a prime minister now who's talking about nationalizing the economy Right. And at the time, post-World War II, this is like one domino step away from full-blown communism. We can't have that, right? So the Dulles brothers basically thought, okay, in order to make sure that Iran is not swayed by Russia or China and they go full communist, we just need to straight up consider them an enemy and we need to like go along with Great Britain on this coup and get rid of this motherfucker. Quick aside, there's definitely like a bunch of horror movies that explore American fear of communism, right? Uh, from the 50s, yeah. Okay. But it was more through like monsters than anything. Oh, no, no. I'm not talking about, like, from the 50s specifically. I just mean any horror movies. Kind of that weird fallout idea of machines that are like, death to the communists. It feels, like, ripe for, like, a good horror movie. Oh, yeah. I mean, in the 50s and 60s, there were certainly a lot of movies that were reactions to McCarthyism. And yeah. then, you know, in the 80s, especially during the Reagan years, there were a lot of movies that dealt with the Cold War paranoia that way as well, too. So, yeah, I mean, there, there have been, certainly. I mean, you could even look at stuff like they live and it's kind of along the same idea once again watch if you dare definitely believes that horror has and always will be political get over it 
1953, the Shah fled to Italy. Meanwhile, a covert U.S. and British military team fucking overthrew the democratically elected prime minister in a coup d'etat. And the Shah walked right back in and said, hey guys, cool, I'm here to uh, take monarchical control of the government. So again, this guy was totally fine with Western influence. That was part of the issue that people in the country had with him. And his regime was corrupt and opulent and authoritarian and very brutal against the people and uh, drastically fucked their economy and basic infrastructure just through a lot of simple inaction. They were just very apathetic and willing to just, okay, soak in our oil money and hang out while the country falls apart around us. And lots of people, again, thought the Shah was just kind of a Western puppet, essentially. And again, both the Shia religious faction, as well as left-leaning political factions, both opposed the Shah's regime. So I guess for, like, maybe an American analog, imagine if the evangelicals never actually bought into Trump's bullshit and were 100% anti-Trump. And imagine if the evangelicals in America were completely in agreement with the left and both of those groups opposed Trump and the Republican government. That's the best current analog that I can give yeah, you. Yeah, that, that's such a crazy situation. As far as situation. how weird, like, bedfellows those two yeah, groups were. that's fascinating that that happened that way. Yeah, and we'll see in a second there's lots of conflict between them. The White Revolution happened between 63 and 78, which was the Shah's push to westernize the country through cultural, economic, and oppressive means. So despite being like immediately exiled to Iraq in 1964, we have the Ayatollah Ruhollah Khomeini, he rose to power during this time as well because he directly opposed all of this forced westernism and capitalism and secularism. He was all for Islam a thousand percent. So during this time where there was kind of this quiet cultural revolution happening, several key things directly led to the revolution. The government organized a celebration of the 2,500 years of the Persian Empire, which was this way overly decadent, lots of money, lots of indulgence, way overblown celebration. That was a government-run thing that happened that lots of people looked at as being like a totally massive huge waste of money and secular and everything else. The oil boom in the 70s caused severe inflation and economic inequality throughout the entire country. All citizens were required to join a national political party. Guess what? It was the only political party. And pay dues. The Shah also showed open support for the U.S. in 77 when Carter was in office. Iranian writers and other creatives began to now openly oppose the Shah's regime. And then Khomeini's son and one of his direct rivals both died under mysterious circumstances that lots of people blamed on the Shah's secret police. From here, it's all fucking dominoes. Opposition groups all coalesced, demonstrations, riots happened basically around the clock all over the country. Western businesses were destroyed, burned. There was lots of Western backlash. The Shah began to kind of backpedal some of his unpopular policies, but just because he was so, like, indecisive and a weak ruler, he was just totally overwhelmed by the opposition. They even, like, elected a new prime minister to kind of appease the revolutionaries a little bit, but the riots just got out of control. Martial law was instated, which then led directly to a lot of 
confrontations between the military and protesters, Black Monday, where a lot of civilians were murdered by the government. There were nationwide labor strikes that occurred. Again, more deadly confrontations at the university. The Shah installed the military government to, like, run things so that he could kind of step back. But at the same time, he kind of doubled down on his own supremacy while still trying to appease the revolutionaries. So, like, it's that same bullshit of, I am the supreme leader, I am the law and order, I'm the ultimate president, nobody can come against me, but I'm also gonna, like, bend over backwards to try to, like, make everybody happy and just generally be, like, fucking vanilla, you know? So, like, it just didn't help, it didn't do anything but make the situation worse. Infrastructure was fucked and seized, the economy was seized... The military just started becoming more and more demoralized because they realized, oh, we're fighting our own family and friends at this point. Finally, the Shah flees for Egypt after being bounced out by his own military and American military mediators who came over. Like, they basically all sat down, our military people, their military people, and said, yeah, fuck it, let's just boot him out. Wait, wait, wait. So we booted the guy that we helped the British, like, establish? Essentially. Our people sat down and basically said, this is what we think y'all should do. And then that's what the military did, is the military bounced out the Shah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Good, jo- good job, good United shit. States. Yeah. Yeah, it's a lot like Great. how we uh, funded and armed the Taliban for years to fight the Russians. And then uh turns out that doesn't work out so well for us. So anyway, Khomeini finally returns from exile as the revolutionary forces kind of finish overthrowing the last of the former government. And... And he begins to consolidate power and slowly eliminate many of the smaller revolutionary groups that weren't strictly Islamic and rejecting of Western values, right? So, again, you had Khomeini leading the Shia super-religious fundamentalists who want to take over the country and turn it into a full theocracy. But then you also have all these leftist groups and all these progressive liberation groups that were very, like, pro-to-progressive ideals, but not necessarily to, like, Western capitalism, per se, right? Maintaining the identity of Iran. And being modern, but not necessarily, like going full like western Western authoritarian capitalism but also not going full islamic theocracy right right so it was weird bedfellows but eventually what happened is they won and khomeini basically started knocking off all the smaller groups because they didn't fall in line with the whole islam first side of it and that plays a specific important part in the movie that we'll mention in a second well i'm glad you brought up all this you know it is it was a quick run through of a a very complicated it's complicated and it's it seems nuts but knowing kind of how all those dominoes fall and how complicated it is and how quick things changed we're talking about the history that happened over the course of 80 years but like that's a lot of shit to happen in just 80 years yeah like just post world war ii to flip your country that many times yeah what led to the conflict with iraq then because that is the other main backdrop of this movie exactly so this is kind of the break point so the revolution happens. This is 1979. Iran is completely flipped upside down. Immediately, Iraq, hoping to take advantage of all this turmoil, invades Iran. And they want to specifically, like, take over the land, take over the oil. Iraq wants to basically just march in and say, like, yo, your shit is ours. Iran was a much wealthier nation, and they had oil and everything else. But the thing about Iraq is they are majority Shia. The vast majority of the country is Shia, the same as the group that has now just taken over Iran. And the Iraqi government is 
all run by a minority Islamic group, the Sunnis, the Ba'athists specifically, and they were more secular and Western-friendly than the Shias were. So that was the entire fear was, okay, shit, Khomeini and the Shia Islamists in Iran are gaining popularity, everything over there is volatile, and the majority of our citizens are actually Shia as well. Fuck. We gotta get this under control. We gotta, like, basically take them out while they're weak to keep that from spreading over the border into our country, and then we're gonna have our fucking lunch eaten. So that's essentially, like, the impetus for this entire conflict, which this would last from 80 to 88. Most of the fighting was done along the border of the two countries, but missile attacks also, like, meant that they could reach far into both countries. Iranians specifically embraced the whole Islamic concept of martyrdom, um, and both sides definitely fought very slow and brutally steady. Like, lots of trench warfare, lots of barbed wire, gas, tanks. Like, it was very old-school World War One. Man, trench warfare in the 80s. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's brutal. And this is all fucked up, obviously. Like, all of this history is fucked up, but the U.S. UK, France, most other Arab nations, and even the fucking Soviet Union all supported Iraq. And Iran was mostly just kind of left by themselves because everybody kind of felt that supporting Khomeini and these Shia fundamentalists was the more dangerous precedent to set. So Iran was basically completely left to themselves while even fucking like combative superpowers like the Soviet Union and the US both were just like, yeah, but Iraq's fine. That's some wild shit. (laughs) Yeah, that's insane. But ultimately, the entire conflict ended in stalemate in 88. And then, like, some fighting kind of continued into, like, the early 90s where a UN-negotiated treaty was finalized. So, all of that fucking said. The ultimate point that I want to kind of make is this entire region has been a fucking powder keg that all just goes back to Western influence coming in and, like, causing disruption. And it also has to do with religious fundamentalism rising in popularity and causing problems. It also has to do with the specter of war constantly being over this region for I mean, years. thousands of years. Well, I mean, yeah, thousands even, of years, really, like if we're like looking at hundreds, the larger Middle hundreds East, of yeah, years yeah. at least, but yeah. But if we're talking like Iran specifically, yeah. the entire 20th century is the fucking blade hanging over their head. As far as like where this story picks up, this story must be set in the early 80s. It has to be set in like maybe 81, 82, 83, somewhere in there. So that kind of brings us to the start of this movie. We meet our lead character, Shideh, who is played by Narges Rashidi. Which, my lord, what a good performance oh, yeah. she gives yeah, in this movie. Fantastic. She is kind of one of those people that seems almost out of time in terms of not just physical beauty, but just something about this movie with the cultural context and it taking place in Tehran in the 80s. One of the things that made me appreciate this movie so much and it's sort of the same thing that I felt while watching like something like The Wailing or Train to Busan. There's just some things about horror but really themes in general of humankind that no matter what part of the world you're in are just universal. Yeah. And her performance and the way she carries herself in this character there are just so many aspects to her character despite being a woman in 
this part of the world in this time period that are again timeless it's it's just something that's so universal so universally relatable for so many people I definitely think her performance in this movie is fantastic. I, I think would it's like incredible. To see her in more stuff. She had very minor roles in Aeon Flux and Speed Racer, which are like the two like Western movies that some people would recognize. But she was also in a lot of German stuff as well. She is Iranian born. Her family moved to Turkey probably right around the time that this movie took place, and then they moved to Germany, where she spent most of her like formative years. She's been in a lot of German. TV stuff, a lot of German movies like Black Sheep, Must Love Death, and A2Z and stuff like that. So she's kind of all over the place acting wise but yeah her performance was fantastic in this it's one of the better horror performances in recent memory from all the movies we've covered granted you know we did just do silence of the lambs i mean but her performance can stand up there with like even stuff like that this is a very different thing yeah yeah yeah, this, yeah. this stands apart so we meet her she is coming back to the country we don't necessarily know where she's been or how long she's been gone but she has come back to the country and she is a medical student and she is wanting to get back into school and start her studies again i'm assuming the guy that she was talking with was maybe the leader of the university or he was maybe some government or immigration person but i took him as like a government official yeah but basically she's told that she is not going to be allowed to continue her studies because because she was involved with a leftist-leaning student revolutionary group. And again, like we just talked about, during the revolution, student groups and leftist organizations were in line with Ayatollah Khomeini and the Shias against the Shah. Yeah, so it's an extra slap in the face there. It's an extra slap in the face, because she was part of the group fighting to get the Shah and his corrupt regime out of power. But then once that happened, Khomeini basically said, okay, cool, well, all these other groups now are no longer accepted either because they're secular they're not islamic enough they're too western like we sided with you to get rid of the shah who is the greater enemy but now like we have to do away with all of you or you have to assimilate you know so that's kind of where this character is now is she is torn between hey i'm coming back to my country i'm coming back to my like homeland because i want to resume my life here and then being told immediately cool but you're not going to be able to do that sorry what a fucked immediate shift to your entire plans for your life and the immediate reality that she gets hit with of like oh yeah you need to go ahead and put a head covering on like where's your kneecap you're not dressed properly anymore you know just all of those little things starting to sink in of the people you helped put in power are now the ones restricting you with all of this um and the thing that's extra haunting about the scene there are two things that caught my eye one kamini's portrait which i'm sure hangs in like every single office of government official buildings is behind him and behind his desk while he's talking to her and it's almost like the picture itself was staring daggers into her and then the second thing that's haunting about this scene is while they're talking in the background of an area of of the city you see something coming down in the sky and it looks like a missile and then it strikes like something in the distance and you just see like the puff of smoke and like the small explosion and like she even pauses and like glances at it for a second and he He doesn't even bat an eye what a way to set the scene as to like what part of the world and what time period you're in right now for that to just be like an everyday thing right now yeah yeah and the fact that he doesn't bat an eye in that scene is just holy shit yeah 
so from here, she returns home. Well, a little bit more dread, too, on her way home. Like, there's a checkpoint, and, like, she has to make sure she looks the appearance. She has to, like, yeah, go through she's it. she put her head covering on it. And, like, you're, you're seeing the background of the city, and, like, the city is starting to, because this is another horror theme that this movie addresses, phobia, is isolationism, too. Because yeah. the whole backdrop of the city is that the big rumor is Iraq has missiles, and the missiles can reach Tehran. And then it's proven true throughout the movie. Like, there's air raid sirens going off. They have to hide in the basement a couple times. And as the movie continues to go on, her and her daughter are staying behind. And more and more people are leaving the city to the point where there is nobody but her and soldiers, basically. Yeah. But even at the beginning of the scene, like, when she's driving back to the apartment, the city is already starting to look barren, with the exception of just random soldiers at this checkpoint. Yeah, people are definitely, like, getting the fuck out while they can. Which, that's something that... You and I can relate to in a different way to a degree. Oh, and natural disasters, yeah. <laughs> and and that's kind of something that I want to go back to pretty frequently is how can we relate to this movie? How can we try to put ourselves in the shoes of these characters and empathize with their situation? Well, yeah, and it goes back to what I was saying like when we were talking about her is this character. This movie really also does hit on so many universal horrific themes that we can all relate yeah. to. We can all relate to isolationism. We can all relate to mother-daughter-child dynamics that this movie explores with horror. We can all relate to that kind of stuff. And that's what I kind of want to keep emphasizing is don't just assume that because this is an Iranian movie in a different language, different culture, different time period, that there's not something in it for you that you can relate to. This is by far not anywhere close to the least relatable horror movie we've even tackled on our show. I related more to this movie than a couple English-speaking horror movies we've covered and ones that even took place in America. This movie is still structured and and the universal themes and tropes are so much so there still and tackled well that it, despite it being again like we've said with like Korean horror and like back when we did Audition with the Japanese horror movie there are still enough things that we can all universally relate to as human beings and the, what's the runtime on this what it's like an hour and a half or something like that yeah. it's it's paced like a horror movie the scares that happen in it are horrific in the same nature as American horror movies I 100% agree with you and like do not discount this movie it, it is a horror movie even if you're not necessarily as fascinated by the backdrop it's still enough of a well-constructed story that it's worth watching. Yeah, and to kind of circle back around, like we were talking about right here, the closest thing that you and I and a lot of listeners can relate to in terms of isolationism while we're like still on that topic is what happens like whenever we have natural disasters, you know, hurricanes specifically in our part of the country, but just a lot of that tension of do we try to leave? How do we know that this one's going to be bad this time? I've been through a bunch of hurricanes before. It can't be that bad. Do we stay at our house and try to like ride this shit out so that we're here afterward in case something bad happens? Do we need to just go ahead and like leave and get away? Like, is it going to be that bad? Just all of that anxiety is exactly the same kind of anxiety as we kind of see in the beginning of this movie of people just, you know, how do we know it's going to be bad? Do we really know that this is true about the missiles? How do we know that they can actually reach us? You know, should we leave? Should we go? Like, when's the right time to do 
that? Where do we go? Where is safe? How far is far enough away? Like all of that anxiety is the same thing times a million because you literally have not just a slow rolling storm coming in that's like a big heavy juggernaut, but missiles that can like flatten your fucking building in a second and you're dead. That's it. Done. I mean, it's a tempest of a different makeup. Yeah, it's a different kind of immediate vibe, but it's the same overall anxiety. I mean, but to them, like to citizens of the city, especially the mother and the daughter who like aren't drafted into military service like the husband is, this is still an, kind of an unknowable thing. Yeah. What's really the difference at the end of the day, a tempest is a tempest and it's going to do what a tempest does. It's going to cause destruction. When I was watching this movie, especially the scenes when it's really just down to the two of them left and like air raid sirens are going off, they're hiding in the basement and everything else. I remember that there was a hurricane. I, forgive me, I don't remember the year. I don't remember the name of the hurricane, whatever. My dad decided, we'll stay, you know, we'll ride this one out, right? Right before it was going to hit, it just jumped to like a category three or something. And we were stuck. We couldn't leave the house because my dad, when we were growing up, he was overly cautious with hurricanes. We would evacuate for anything that was a cat two or higher, no matter what. Yeah. And his boss, he said like, if you want to, you can go into the office building. The office building, they're allowing for people to shelter there if they like. It's a constructed steel building. You know, it's the second floor. There are plenty of offices that are nowhere near windows. So it's such a surreal thing. We drove to my dad's office. The only person there other than us, as far as I could tell, was the security guard. Let us in. We went upstairs and we basically had like sleeping bags and stuff. Slept on like couches that were in certain people's offices. And we lived in an office building that was basically secluded and no one was around for about two or three days while the storm was rolling in. And the storm turned out to not be too bad, thankfully. But like we lost power at one point. And like I remember because I was like maybe 10 or 11, maybe even younger than that. I remember like going to play and wandering around an empty office building like to the other floors and stuff. Yeah. And it's like something out of a nightmare. It's like something out of just like being lost in an unknowable building that, you know, is normally like just a place of business, people having meetings and shit. But like now you're have the eerie backdrop of this storm. No one's around. The only sounds you're hearing are like wind outside because I, I think I only did it once and like I was too freaked out just by the silence of feeling like there was a shadow watching me at all times. So I stayed near my parents for the rest of that time we were there and like that kind of dread and fear that ran through me as a kid this movie as I was watching that happening unburied those kind of feelings and that memory in my mind yeah so from here we learn that Shadez's husband Iraj who is a doctor there is some tension between them because he is a full-blown doctor and he is still allowed to practice because he is a man and she is now stuck because of her gender like where she is you can tell she was passionate about becoming a doctor yeah and one of her like prized possessions is a medical textbook that her mother gave her and wrote something in and that kind of keeps coming back up as this specter of the past that you kind of see show back up throughout the movie but anyway they find out despite the fact that she's kind of jealous that her husband still gets to practice he is called into service and he is being sent basically to the front lines this whole experience is another kind of relatable horror anxiety whatever of tension in a marriage especially when you have like a young kid around yeah you know hey everyone i'm expecting my first child soon but like it was particularly effective for me these scenes between her and her husband of having this tension and trying to keep up pretenses with your child. And there's even a little bit of like that tension of the child maybe prefers the father and like she's not as... 
I don't want to say loving, but the father seems like he has a more healthy relationship with the daughter at this point. She's kind of taking out her frustrations on the both of them. And like that all leads to a lot more tension that happens in the movie when it's just the two of them and like the specter literally trying to turn them on each other. Yeah. And I mean, you also kind of get the idea that some of the gender politics might be kind of playing into that where she has to be the disciplinarian and dad just gets to be like fun time, happy, like, yeah, let's play and everything great yeah the daughter kind of prefers him because of that dynamic yeah. a little bit yeah but Iraj wants the two of them to go stay with his parents in a safer farther away from the fighting part of the country but Shadad just says no we're staying here in our house I'm not leaving nothing's gonna happen it can't be that crazy and the daughter Dorsa's definitely like upset that dad's gotta go but it is what it is well and something that's kind of shown during these scenes specifically when Shadad is stressed she puts on like workout clothes and goes and puts in a tape of Jane Fonda workouts from the West. Yeah. Definitely the book of medical physiology that her mom gave her is like her most prized possession. But like she also kind of covets this workout tape. Yeah. It's a stress relief. It's a coping mechanism. And it seems like something she loves to use on a daily basis. Well, she also kind of has that dynamic of like, I don't want to live in a theocracy. I don't want to live under Islamic law. I left the country. I was in university i got to see like what modern western women were doing with their lives i got a taste for that and i still want to live my life like that she definitely dresses more contemporary when she's at home yeah but as soon as like anybody comes to the door she has to put on her head covering and turn off you know the tv and whatever she was doing like she essentially has to hide those modern things whenever anybody comes around she literally has to hide the vcr and tape because at one point yeah later on the movie they have a repairman come and we'll get to why that has to happen she even like scolds the daughter being like don't let him know that we have a vcr and tapes because government officials and basically soldiers will come and take that shit away from us because we're not supposed to own it 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 is kind of these quiet rebellions for the sake of herself and her family like when people are around it is like you were saying kind of like hiding that putting on the proper quote unquote proper uh i hate to use that word but you know headdress and everything else yeah things kind of start getting into this new normal, right? We see Dorsa playing with other kids that live in the building. The, not landlord, because it's not the same thing, but like the the building owner, the apartment manager, owner guy, and his family, they take in a kid who was their cousin's child or something, and they were killed in one of the missile attacks. There's some nice foreshadowing, by the way, with the garage door, because the building tenant confronts Araj before he leaves. And it is a little bit more, again, of like those gender dynamics of like, oh, it must be your wife who like messed up the garage door because like someone bumped into it and it's like not opening properly. Your wife's the only woman here who knows how to drive. So must have been her. Yeah. But like that also sets up for like something that happens way later in the film. Chekhov's garage door. (laughs) Chekhov's garage door. Yeah. But yeah, there's a scene where we have, you know, one of the air raids where you hear the sirens and everybody starts leaving their apartments, throw down everything that you're doing get your kids, get your family, leave your apartment, and everybody head downstairs to the basement. And during this first instance, we see where this new kid who has moved in with the apartment manager's family in Dorsa are kind of whispering back and forth and sharing secrets, and, you know, the parents catch them and pull them apart. And, you know, the little boy gives Dorsa something, and we find out later that, oh, they were talking about the djinn, the... 
Islamic, Middle Eastern, like, genie is kind of the anglicized version of it, right? It's closer to, like, a poltergeist or a demon, even. Yeah, it's like this demon kind of character that can be good, can be bad, you know, bad, like, they bring misfortune and strife, plague and famine, and just, like, it's basically all for the fucking horsemen of the apocalypse put into a genie if they're bad, you know? Yeah. And that's kind of the entire idea is this little boy is telling her, like, oh, there's a djinn here, there's a djinn here, and take this charm and it's going to protect you, right? And Shadeh, of course, just looks at it and is like, yeah, this is bullshit, and she throws it away. Well, and, and the charm, uh, later on, I was reading, because I was like, what the hell is that charm made of? Well, and I think they even stated at some point in the movie, too, it's made out of cat fur, but like... Yeah, it's just like a giant ball of cat hair, yeah. It's something like a blessed cat, uh, like there was some ritual, I guess, that and yeah, they sure. took the fur from the cat. That's definitely something I've heard, is that like, jinns and genies don't like cats. Cats, historically, hell, and even in Egypt, have always been associated with the afterlife and spirits. There is that great scene, and once again, returning to Brandon Fraser's The Mummy, where like, the mummy is afraid of cats yeah. um, until it's reached its full power. But even like, in a more Western or European viewpoint, cats have always been associated with witchcraft and all of that, too. Yeah. So, <laughs> going back to, again, the just highlighting universal horror tropes, because you find out that this boy's parents who died in the shelling, he's also been mute, however like, he's been talking to Dorsa, yeah. apparently. It was the whole oh yeah get your creepy like nephew kid to like stop talking to my daughter what do you mean he doesn't talk to anybody yeah, oh. he doesn't talk at all yeah like yeah. it's the trope of the creepy kid who doesn't talk except to one person and like no one yeah. ever hears him talk yeah the situation continues to get more intense there's more air raids happening there's more sirens just the general level of anxiety is going higher and higher and to top this all off Dorsa starts to kind of get sick she starts to get kind of feverish disassociated, which is also kind of driving Shadeh up the wall as well. And then finally we have a moment where there's this massive explosion shaking the building and Shadeh kind of slowly wanders up the stairwell to find that a fucking missile has crashed through the fucking roof of their like upstairs neighbor's house and the tip of this fucking missile is crashed through her roof the ceiling in their apartment there is literally now like a giant missile tip yeah. cracked through the roof with all these air raid sirens going off and them having to hide in the basement um that basement is scary as fuck right like that, that place <laughs> yeah. looked like it would suck to wait out a freaking missile strike in and granted i have never been in threat of missile strikes and i fundamentally no. get the idea of get off the top floors but to me getting in the basement doesn't seem any safer because guess what if that building falls down and crashes it's going to uh fall on top of you right am i crazy about that well i mean i've had the same thought process but like you know they say the same thing like when our tornado is rolling through like if you have a basement go into the basement away from the windows or yeah but you don't have fucking gajillions of pounds yeah, of concrete that's, yeah. and like a skyscraper on top of you like yeah. your house getting just poof blown away over you is different than like oh this concrete slab yeah. just fell on top of you right but i have i have had that thought process of what if the house instead of being blown away just collapses and we can't actually get out of wherever we're yeah. hiding in and that whole scene like when the missile hits is harrowing because like oh yeah i would count it even as a, like a as a minor jump scare because like there's first you hear a small explosion kind of far off in the distance and like she's trying to get dorsa to go down to the basement but dorsa's looking for her doll that she names Kimia 
that her dad gave her and he promised the doll will protect her and it's become her favorite toy or but not even a toy it's like it's just her favorite thing she always carrying it and she's like looking for her and so Shade is trying to get Dorsa to like gotta go downstairs and then like in the middle of all that there's an even louder explosion like when the missile hits the upstairs it's very harrowing when that happens she like runs into Dorsa's room and Dorsa's like knocked out maybe concussed from the the force of the missile hitting or whatever while there's only been like whispers and brief moments of like kind of strange activity and paranormal activity this scene is one of the first horrific scenes in the movie to me and it's a real life horror it's not even the spirit yeah just the entire idea of oh this whole ass missile is now just sitting in our building and it didn't explode (laughs) it didn't explode like that's fucking that's fucking terrifying as well too you know that could be like a time bomb literally like waiting to happen yeah yeah don't touch that shit you see a crane pulling it out of the side of the building later and it's the same thing it's just like oh god be fucking careful with that missile so that it does not explode right now and kill everybody in this fucking building anyway during this entire thing Shadet goes upstairs to the neighbors and old man that lives with this family he's had a heart attack from the missile situation and she was unable to save him well he had literally crashed into the living room when he was sitting in the chair basically yeah Yeah. so that's hanging over her head as well just I can't even be a doctor anymore like yeah because she tries to do CPR that's all I want to do is practice medicine help people and now like cool I'm doing that in this extreme situation and like I still couldn't save this guy you know like so even that's weighing on her at this point I'm gonna try to talk about this without crying myself because this is like heavy this is a fear right here in this whole thing this scene and then like here on out throughout the movie I would even say it's PTSD from this whole experience of failing to save this man this is something that my work as a nurse this is the fear that I dealt with throughout a lot of my adult life after college to the point where I left nursing behind because I just couldn't deal with this from a mental health standpoint because like all her neighbors still like especially after her husband leaves all the neighbors are treating her like a doctor anyway yeah because they're like oh well you had at least some medical training therefore a couple of them go to her with health problems or health questions when this happens her neighbors begging her like can you do something to save him when he's on the ground and she does initiate cpr but it's too far too late she carries that guilt she couldn't save him because she was incapable rather than it was out of her hands because in actuality it was way out of her hands like a fucking missile dropped through the roof and then there's also another more supernatural reason we find out later as to what might have killed him so it's something that was way beyond her control no matter what she could have done like wouldn't have saved this guy but she still felt responsible for his death even though she had nothing to do with what caused it and this is something i have dealt with personally with patients to the point where like i had to leave the career i went to college for because i couldn't cope with it this movie tackles that fear it was a fear i was not expecting it to tackle this is what made it all the more horrifying for me and the more relatable for me like going forward as much as there's allegories as to like what's going on with actual conflict between iraq and iran also her own personal ptsd dealing with medical is a big theme going forward yeah in the midst of all this situation with the missile, the doll has gone missing, and of course, Dorsa does the little kid thing, insisting that like, no, somebody took her, the djinn took her, I saw it, trust me, and, you know, the mom is just convinced that, no, the doll is just fucking lost, you're a kid, you don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> Dorsa's now, like, becoming erratic, and like, claiming there's a strange presence in the house. Yeah. She keeps trying to get into the apartment on the upper floor where the missile crashed through, because she's convinced that the 
the doll is there. And the woman who lived with her father on that floor, her father that died, you know, she comes and speaks with Shadeh before they leave town as well and get the fuck out. And basically says, our father was looking just terrified like he had seen a ghost or something before the missile hit. Yeah. We knew that something was wrong, you know, so it wasn't even the missile, it wasn't you. Like, something else happened to him. Okay, bye. Like, we're leaving. Just have fun with that cryptic information. We're getting the fuck out. It wasn't the missile. He was claiming he saw a figure behind, standing behind me when no one was there, and that's what killed him. See ya! Like, what the fuck? Yeah. So, little by little, all the neighbors start to, like, dip the fuck out. And finally, like, the building owner, manager guy, and his family, like, they're kind of the last ones that are there. The wife invites Shadet over just to kind of come hang out and drink tea. And we learn that this family is definitely more religious. They are especially superstitious. This is where she kind of tells Shadet, like, yeah, gins are real. Oh no, like, that's a real thing. Gins actually exist, and they can sometimes possess people. That might be what's wrong with Dorsa, your daughter. They stole her doll, so, you know, that could be what's going on. So, you've got this grown woman totally buying into this supernatural nonsense, and Shadet's just not buying it. Well, and here's the main theme of this movie right here, too, is when they're talking about the Jin. she's saying that, like, they travel over the wind. She even suggests that the missile brought something with it, basically. Yeah. That idea of the missile that was sent from a foreign country, Iraq, that's attacking us right now, sends this missile over, crashes in our apartment, opens a hole in the apartment, and with it came a jinn. Yeah. You can see the symbolism, right? Like, the themes that this is trying to, like, say here. The specter of war literally coming to ruin their lives. This is yet another one of those cases of just that mute kid, yeah, like, yeah, we believe all this stuff no he there's validity in what he says by the way we're out of here too so yeah have fun like it happens again and uh Shade is still insisting like they just stay here and mind you like through all these scenes she is now experiencing like weirdness as well another kind of plot point is that people tape an x across their windows to help them not blow out like if there's an explosion it's to help them not shatter yeah and we do the same thing down here in the gulf south during hurricanes yeah. as well a lot of times people will put tape on big plate glass windows and they always do an x if yeah. they blow out they're gonna blow out but it just helps the glass from like completely shattering everywhere yeah but i will say like just one basic x ain't gonna help you gotta kind of asterisk that motherfucker a little bit yeah, yeah. but that's another like striking image yeah. in this movie is constantly seeing literally the shadow of this x yeah everywhere this stupid really ultimately at the end of the day useless thing that we do to like protect ourselves from something that is not just gonna fuck us period if it happens but is inevitable and it's just one of those weird like because she insists on keeping the tape up like i just I have to keep the tape up. I have to keep putting the tape up because that's the thing that we just have to do to like protect us, even though like it is at the end of the day, completely meaningless. You know, it's just kind of one of those extra things of living with the specter of war hanging over you. Well, and it gets to the point where like at one point it almost is implied, is this the only thing keeping this thing floating around outside from coming into our own apartment? Yeah. There's a a jump scare where like something goes by the window. She starts having these nightmares, especially so 
associate with this window, especially after like these people leave when they're the only ones left. And this is the jump scare that scared the living fuck out of me right here. <laughs> so she has a, a series of nightmares and this is like maybe the second or third nightmare. She walks over to the window. One part of the tape is unfolded off the window. So she fixes it. She like retapes it and makes the X again. And the way this scene is paced is she does that and you're expecting like as soon as she touches that window, like something's flying in and it doesn't happen. She backs up from the window and is just looking at it for a good five second pause nothing happens and then a fucking arm just out of nowhere shatters through the glass and grabs her throat and it is like barely a second of this loud noise imagery of this arm just coming through the window and grabbing her throat not even a second it flashes for a second and then she's out of the bed screaming and that jump scare for whatever fucking reason I was not expecting and it scared the shit out of me like I almost (laughs) shit myself probably one of the scariest jump scares I think that affected me since we've started this show. I don't know why it got me, but like the way they pace that scene, the headspace I was in at this moment because this movie was so intense fucking got me good. And like that's not even maybe the most horrific imagery when it comes to actual jump scares in this movie. But for whatever reason, that was the one that really, really got me. So from here, there's just more and more supernaturally kind of stuff that happens. You know, she keeps seeing this image of what appears to be this ghost it even looks very grim reapery floating around in a chador yeah and that also is like some pretty strong allegory for what this movie is also kind of getting into but finally like Dorsa admits that she's been seeing the same stuff. She's seeing the woman in the Shador as well. And they finally decide that they need to leave. But Dorsa's insisting that they find her doll or else. Like, if we leave without this doll, then we could be irrevocably fucked. The doll seems to be some kind of charm or key in and of itself. Yeah, and and also just we need to find the doll because at this point she's realizing that the Jin stole the doll or something and is now trying to possess her daughter or take her daughter. So if they leave without the doll, they're still fucked. The Jin will follow them because, yeah. like, they didn't recover the item. Also, too, with the Jin being basically a chador with nothingness, where the the head should be, the face should be. It's almost like a Middle Eastern take on like a ghost in a white sheet with eye slits, like what we would think in America. Except this movie makes that fucking specter so terrifying. If you were to just look at a picture of it, I mean, it's spooky, it's it's haunting, but it's not like outright in your face, demon faced ghoul. It is just a ghast. It's very grim reaper it's, it's a ghastly figure. Yeah. yeah. So eventually they do find the doll, and the doll's been torn up, right? The arms and the head have been torn off. But Shadad literally tapes the fucking doll off so that they can get the fuck out. Meanwhile, Dorsa and her have been butting heads, and Dorsa's been saying the woman has been telling me, you've been lying to me, you're the one who hid my doll, you're the one who mutilated my doll. Like, the woman is trying to basically trick Dorsa into, like, leaving her mom and coming with her yeah the specter itself because this is where shit really starts hitting the fan among these instances we've had these weird phone calls from the father from the war zone still trying to like plead with her like leave to go to your parents and then when the last phone calls they get as this final air raid starts sounding the siren goes off the voice like starts berating her over the phone and it's implied that it's the jinn fucking with her like the voice of her husband starts berating her calling her a whore and like a terrible mother and all this and that also one of the other scariest scenes in this fucking movie is like she wants into the room 
and her daughter is sitting in that chair. She's staring up at where the crack where the missile came in and it's opened and the light is shining down on her and her daughter's face is just contorted and her jaws wide open. The Shador ghost comes into the scene and like swoops at Shade. Like that was another jump scare that really fucking got me. But yeah, like another air raid siren goes off and this is where they finally decide like, yeah, let's get the fuck out. This is a good fake out. I was very impressed by this whole switcheroo. Yeah. They are on their way down to the shelter. You know, she is rushed and like grabs Dorsa, not really paying attention, just grabbing the daughter and everything and getting down there. And, you know, when she's almost all the way at the bottom, she suddenly hears Dorsa screaming back up the stairwell still in the apartment. And she freaks the fuck out and looks down and like the fuck what is this that's with me right now and she like ditches whatever this weird apparition is they do cleverly because the door shows she left with to go to the shelter her hood is over her head you can only really see her mouth so like you're thinking like they're doing this thing like oh is this a fake dorsa like trying to trick her to come downstairs to the basement so yeah like you were saying she rushes back upstairs as what she assumes is the real dorsa screaming yeah and she's under the bed she is trying to pull her out from under the bed and that's when she realizes oh shit no i was double double tricked this is the fucking apparition ah so fucking doris is actually down the basement and she gets all the way back down there again and doris is just like fuck you mom why did you leave me god damn it well you're skipping over again some solid jump scares here because when she realizes it's the apparition the apparition timely lifts up its face and where doris's face should be is just this giant mouth with long teeth trying to literally bite her and like is grabbing her hair and she has to rip out her hair when she rushes down and like the real Dorsa is down there and she's like fuck you mom like why'd you do that to me like the lady is here and she told me like this is why like I should come with her and she's like wait a minute she's down here and then all of a sudden the Jin like comes out from like the corner of the room and like grabs Dorsa what's a really cool visual effect in this movie of the entire cloak of the Shador like just seeming to be endless yeah it takes over the entire floor of the basement while it's trying to swallow Dorsa and Shade has to like literally run into it like it's a tent that's been broken down and battle through it to get her daughter. Yeah, that in and of itself is a pretty effective scare as well. But eventually, yeah, she like pushes through that. There's kind of a scene where like they're trying to run back up the stairs to get to the garage where the car is at and they're kind of sinking into the floor and it's kind of quicksandy and they're having to pull each other out of that. Well, and Dorsa is the one who actually pulls Shade out of that because like Dorsa's yeah. on the stairs and like they reach each other. And I took of like finally as I'm your daughter, you're my mother, vice versa. We love each other like like, let's yeah. get the fuck out of here. Like We're in this together. Yeah. But yeah, they finally get in the car. Again, Chekhov's garage door where they have trouble getting it the fuck open so that they can get the car back out. And eventually, you know, they drive off and we just see them drive into the distance. Wind blowing, debris going everywhere, storm clouds and dust from the missile strikes. And they just drive off into the distance. Well, and it shows them like in the countryside. So I think they at least got out of the city, thankfully. I'm assuming. Yeah they were going to his mom's finally yeah and the last image that we see in the movie we see that the doll's head fell off and was left behind 
along with the medical textbook that Shadez's mother gave her, which implies that those two things that were taken by the Jin Spectre are still there. So because the Jin still has those things in this apartment building, they are still technically, you know, maybe under the curse still. You know, they are condemned to forever live under the shadow. Yeah. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. So just beyond all the cultural relevancy, which is very heavy and interesting and just as effective from like a horror standpoint, even just the bare bones, like supernatural, this is a haunted house story. All of that is effective. All of that is fucking scary. The idea of just like you had said, turning that floating Shador ghastly image into like a grim reaper specter of death. That image itself, while it sounds simple and it shouldn't be scary, the movie makes it terrifying. One of the most effective jump scares, in my opinion, I've seen in any movie with a fucking hand coming through the, the window. We've done a lot of good American horror, but like, once again, I just got to ask, are foreign films just on a whole nother level with horror? Like I, I said that with The Wailing especially, and now I'm kind of just got to ask that question again after watching this movie. And you definitely seem to focus a lot on jump scares in movies because that is particularly affecting to you. Well, that and psychological horror, which this movie also has a lot of psychological dread to it. Sure, and that's kind of what I was about to say is jump scares don't do jack shit for me yeah you're the scarecrow it's very very rare that jump scares ever actually do anything for me yeah yeah you've been shooting fear toxin for years now uh, but the amount of just general dread and anxiety that is soaked into this movie is the stuff that definitely kept me on edge the entire time I was watching it and definitely sat with me for a while afterward. And I think, you know, a lot of it might just be knowing what the beginning of this year has looked like already. And to circle back around to the point that I made earlier, we have been very lucky as a country to not constantly be living in a state of open armed conflict and turmoil and death like a lot of other places in the world that's just a fact of living in the u.s is even with the wars we've been involved in and the foreign conflicts we've been involved in and all the other like awful bullshit that our government's been involved in very little of it has directly affected people day to day here in ways that we see in this movie you know it's not been since world war ii that people here really really lived under that day-to-day constant something could happen kind of threat you know i guess in an existential way obviously like there was that cold war fear of nuclear annihilation that our parents generation can really speak to you know doing drills and shit hiding under your desk like that's gonna fucking save you from nuclear annihilation but that existential dread is a different flavor from like the day-to-day a fucking missile could go through my building right now and we're dead that's it building collapses we're all dead done not just that but living under the constant fear of i have to change everything about who i am to fit in now yeah because we'd even touch on like the scene where like she gets her first real big scare like she grabs dorsa and runs doesn't put on any of the headdress or anything just runs out of the apartment and is running down the street and she's picked up by soldiers and harassed yeah you are improperly dressed and she's brought to some government facility where they're like you're under the threat of being lashed and like all this shit the look on her face too where she is just like are you 
for real, motherfucker. <laughs> yeah, I'm dealing with the goddamn gin right now. Yeah. With everything going on right now, I'm sitting dealing with your bullshit, and you're telling me, like, <laughs> I didn't have my fucking head covering on, eat my ass. Yeah. But everything in this movie, as a country, and again, I'm generalizing because there are lots of people in our country who, like, do have to deal with similar things as far as hiding their identity and who they are and having to, like, change who they are and how they behave to, like, be proper and appropriate and fit in in air quotes right those general fears and anxieties definitely are things that people in our country can relate to but as far as the war aspect of this which is kind of the biggest specter that the movie is dealing with that's something that as a country again we've been kind of lucky to not live under the day-to-day stresses of living in a fucking active war zone but so much of where this movie is And the things that led up to this, it all starts with small shit. And that's what's ultimately kind of scary thinking about it in the wake of the fucking attempted coup that we had just a couple weeks ago. And granted, it was a coup executed by mostly a bunch of fucking dumbasses who were there on a complete fucking lie, who were disorganized. As much as they were organized, they were disorganized, who basically just showed up and showed their asses. It could have been much worse. And still, we're all shook by what happened because we saw just how easy it was for bullshit like that to occur and how the systems that should keep us safe and the people that should be stopping things like that from happening are also just like, oh, fuck it, whatever. Huh, it's funny, right? You could argue that we could be doing even more to address it. Uh, yeah. I've, I feel like in some ways we're already forgetting about it and it's only been a couple weeks ago, but that's all yeah. aside. But stuff like that, you know, that just happened to us and that's so fucking small potatoes compared to like what this country specifically has dealt with in the past century i mean we could specifically even just say like the last 50 years but it all starts with small shit you know and it's just that fear and dread of like what happens if that snowball starts getting bigger here for real trump was a whole weird thing in and of itself but now that they are out of power it's clear that those people are going to do everything they can to like get that back and that's what's scary is knowing what the next few years will entail and what could potentially happen over the next few years you know the little things that build up over time to become actual problems constantly living under that shadow and you know having that anxiety and dread hanging over our heads and again we are like scratching the surface on what other countries like iran in this particular story have dealt with and that's the biggest layer of this onion but what's so good about this movie and especially as a horror movie is it's not just commenting on the one thing You know, Shadeh as a character, and again, like, Under the Shadow is such a good fucking title. She is living under so many shadows. She is living under the shadow of war. She is living under the shadow of motherhood and all the anxieties that come with that. Her society. The theocracy, yeah. Yeah. She is specifically dealing with the theocracy and the shadow of Islam fundamentally being anti-woman, you know, and not being friendly to her and her aspirations and how she wants to live her life. Her medical knowledge and her drive to become a doctor. Yeah, everything. 
everything. Yeah. And not just that, but she sees that her daughter is also particularly susceptible to all these same things. And she sees all the shit that she is having to deal with, and she knows all of that and more is in store for her daughter, and it's just a matter of time. Yeah, because when she's picked up by the soldiers and, like, berated at that government facility, her daughter's right there next to her while this person's just yelling at her. So as bad as everything is right now, and as aware as she is of the political situation and the cultural situation and the existential threat of war, like, around her, literally all of that and more is just waiting for the daughter. And so, so much of the movie is also, like, trying to... To escape that for her as well and to get her from out underneath that and not have to like grow up and live with the same stuff hanging over her head. I guess that's kind of where I'll wrap myself up. I mean, I think that's a good wrap up for the both of us. Yeah, I mean, there's so much going on with this movie. It packs so much into it for an hour and a half movie, man. Like, there's just so many layers to it. Yeah, it moves. It's very well written. It's very well paced. You're not going to be bored watching the movie, certainly. But there's a lot to unpack the more that you think about it. And again, I know that I went through like a big fucking long Wikipedia spiel, but I think knowing the context is important. And I think anytime that you watch a foreign movie specifically and one that has cultural and political significance that's a major part of the story i think you owe it to yourself to like get on wikipedia and just like look up some basics so that you have a better context for what you're looking at and to understand you know the background a little bit and you'll understand better where the director's coming from where the writer's coming from where the cast is pulling their influences from so it's certainly worth your time to like do your homework in those instances both the director as well as the main actress and i'm sure plenty of other actors throughout this movie were born during all this in iran yeah i think the director himself was born in tehran when all this was starting up so yeah there's there's also just a ton of personal touch to it but man yeah we promised we were gonna get a little darker yeah (laughs) after like after having some fun i don't know what else there is to say like it's not even an hour and a half i think it's even technically less than an hour and a half runtime and this movie packs more into it than some movies i've watched that have gone close to three hours it's just incredible so yeah it is on netflix definitely check it out you have nothing to lose here as far as the director's concerned baba kamvari made a movie called wounds talk about like a weird wild jump going from doing this british qatari co-production about iran to jumping into a fucking weird lovecraft movie set in new orleans starring fucking like dakota johnson zazzy beats and fucking gross cannibal sex lord army hammer i was just about to say no problematic cannibal army hammer if you yeah. did so there you go I spoke about that movie as a I watched this recently not as a recommendation certainly a while back so I can't remember what episode it was if you're interested I've spoken about that movie before I don't feel like wasting time on it now other than just to say like I want to see more from this director I don't think Wounds was <sighs> it's bad 
it's a wild giant fucking swing and i think most of the issue with the movie is the script itself like i have no idea what the fuck is going on with that movie but i'd rather like a wild swing that falls flat that's and that's what i was about to say like something that just sucks yeah yeah (laughs) i have said that on the show over and over that i would rather watch an ambitious mess that is wild makes no fucking sense any day of the week than watch something that's boring or disengaging or just trite that movie's at least fucking weird and makes decisions he has been producing and he's directed an episode or two of the hulu show monster land oh shit i didn't know that okay. i hope to see more from anvari going forward yeah i mean at this point this first movie you know despite what wounds was this first movie has earned enough of my keep essentially that i'll check out whatever comes out so that's yeah. it I guess peek behind the curtain, we are going to be banking some episodes. So if you're listening to the next few episodes over the next few weeks and you think, huh, this is kind of behind, huh, they don't know about XYZ thing that just happened. Oh, God. Oh, God. The world's on fire. I hope. Yeah, we hope like, nothing's happening. Like our, the next several episodes are universal, just like, oh, okay. Yeah. And like none, nothing we reference is too dated or like, oh, why didn't they talk about something fuck awful that just happened? Yeah. But regardless, we are going to be banking a few episodes for a stretch of time so that everything is kind of off Derek's plate for when Babby gets here. Babby. Babby. So that way he's got time to spend with his wife and family and do what they need to do so i'll be huddled here with my family and editing and we'll go from there and hope that we're not massively behind on the world at that point and all of our episodes are out of date stay tuned please rate review and subscribe uh at all the podcatchers at this point at watch if you dare on twitter and facebook absolutely and once again thanks to my little brother jesse for the music bumps the beginning and the ends of all of our episodes big thanks just preemptively to all the guests that we have had on our show so far this year we've had some pretty great people on this far and we've got some other good people lined up so you know once again thanks to everybody that has been on recently we've got a couple of episodes that'll be just Derek and I for a little while but we do have some other guests lined up oh boy we got a big one with a a guest that you personally know Aaron yeah arguably one of the best scariest horror movies of all time and we'll just leave it at that but that's that's in the works yeah so but yeah that's gonna be it for this week once again yeah we are watch if you dare this is your movie monster boy aaron and my cowardly co-host Derek. and we will catch everybody later i don't have a catchy ending but i don't know how appropriate it is for this yeah movie. i don't want to necessarily like poke a joke at, at a movie like this heavy i guess uh Sally, I hope you got your stocks out of GameStop and made some money. I don't know. Like, that seems relevant right now. Yeah, I guess it's good enough. (laughs) Low effort. Low effort.